Not and therefore I have hope, and as of the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, His compassions fail not, they are new every morning, great is thy faithfulness. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and He shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight thyself in the Lord, and He shall give thee the desires of thy heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in Him, and He will bring it to pass. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship, filled with the Holy Spirit, ready to concentrate, focus on God's Word, keep warm, don't shiver too much, put your coat on if you need to now, because apparently the heater was off most of the day, and uh, when it was finally put on, it had already gotten so cold in here that uh, it's taken quite a while for it to come up to a somewhat acceptable temperature. And there's the heater man now. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it, 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 you can't tell it by the thermometer in here, but we do have heat. It, it is coming out of the vent. It came on at 5.30? Just one of those little adversities we face here. Okay, let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much that we have you to come to, that you are a God who has been aware of all of our needs, every problem, adversity, heartache we face. You have been aware of from eternity past, and you are in control of every circumstance. Father, we thank you for your word, that it is sufficient, that you have given us everything we need for life and godliness, that you have provided everything we need to solve any situation in life. Now, Father, as we continue our study of James, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and see how they apply to our own lives and be challenged by them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. And we make our way into the last chapter of James. Now, it was in the early Middle Ages that the chapter divisions were inserted into the text. And unfortunately, they're not always in the best place. If I were to divide James up into chapters, I would not begin the fifth chapter until verse 7. (coughs) Starting in verse 7, we have the conclusion to the epistle. And when we look at verses 1 through 6, if you notice, the first two words are come now. And... The first two words of chapter 4, verse 13, are come now, indicating that these two paragraphs are connected. One of the major issues in verses 13 through 17 is that these reversionistic believers are out trying to solve the problems in their life through planning business success and profit. This is the same issue, the problem with money and materialism, lust, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. <coughs> Verse 1 reads, Excuse me. Too bad Jim's not here. He could get me a glass of water filled with salt. But since he's not here, I'll trust Aaron to bring me a glass of, of water without salt. James 5 1. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. 
The problem that we're dealing with here is one that is common to people throughout the ages, and that is that they think somehow money will solve their problems. Now, we all know that money is helpful in addressing many problems in life. But money is not the ultimate solution. The ultimate solution is in the Lord. And the problem here is that as they're facing adversities, rather than ultimately relying upon the Lord and His will, this was the problem we saw in verses 13 through 17, is that they were operating in arrogance. They had perfected the use of the arrogant skills. Arrogant skills begin with... um, Self-absorption, self-indulgence, self-justification, and then self-deception. And in self-absorption, they were concerned about their own problems and their own solutions, and God was not a part of their plan. So the whole issue there was uh, that James corrects them that the, pro- that the thing is that you make your plans, but you need to include the Lord. If the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. And then in verse 17, what we discover is that not only are there sins of commission, but there are sins of omission. The one who knows the right thing to do, that is, they had been taught, they did have doctrine, they did know the right thing to do, and the one who does not do it to him, it is sin. So sin is not merely an act of commission, but also involves the act of omission. To avoid doing something you know you ought to do is just as much a sin as doing something That is wrong. Now, the problem they're facing throughout this epistle is a money problem. You know, one of the things that's interesting is in churches, doctrinal churches, and in grace churches, sometimes we're afraid to talk about money because we're so concerned that we're going to be identified with the health and wealth heretics or that somebody's going to feel like we're twisting their arm financially that somehow we go so far to the other extreme that we don't ever talk about money. And the other night, for those of you who weren't here at the congregational meeting, Ken did a masterful job of showing us how much an act of faith it is to walk through the doors of this old meeting house every single time we have Bible class, and thank God that it doesn't fall down around our ears. But the thing that struck me as I was thinking about the finances of the church, without being too judgmental of previous generations, one of the things that people forget sometimes is that in the Proverbs it says that a wise man lays up an inheritance for his children. And when all you do is spend everything that comes through your hands and you don't provide for the future, for the next generation and the next generation, then the Bible calls that foolishness. And I am amazed. My first church, I was in a church that was started in 1895, and they had about five times the money socked away in the bank that this this church has. And that's because over the years, people had been challenged to leave legacies to the church, and they had stored up financial resources. And yet a church that's been here, as this one has, congregation for 200 years, and to not have that shows that somewhere along the line, people were afraid to teach the truth or they just did not have a wise understanding of how to utilize their financial resources. I mean, every one of us understands that no matter how 
short we may be financially each month, we still need to lay up a dollar or two in savings for those hard times that are going to come along eventually. And the same thing is true for a congregation. And I was thinking the other night after listening to Ken that I think one of the things we need to do, because eventually we're going to need to spend some major dollars around here, and that's a responsibility incumbent on everybody. See, that's another problem in grace churches. We teach about giving is grace, and so everybody thinks that means that it's the other guy's responsibility to uh, contribute to the financial needs of the local congregation. Because, after all, it's grace, so I don't need to do anything. Well, the bills still need to be paid, and we still need to deal with some issues related to this old meeting house. And I think that what we ought to do, one of the things in the long-term plan is to set up what we might call sort of a building solutions category in the budget and to challenge people in the congregation to give above and beyond the normal uh, needs of the church. We still need to meet our budget, but we ought to be challenged to give above and beyond that. We still need to make up for the capital expense of putting in the new windows last year, and we have other things that come up, and that we can contribute to that building solutions fund, whether the long-term solution is replacing this building with a new building, or whether the long-term solution is simply to keep patching this old crate up so that it survives another year, well, that's in the Lord's plan. We'll just have to wait and see how that unfolds. But we, as a congregation, need to be challenged with those financial responsibilities. The reason that giving is grace is because we're not giving to earn God's favor. It's not. Uh, we're not going to check up on you. Nobody's going to keep a record of how much you've given or not given and come knock on your door and say, well, you need to give X amount of money every month if you're going to be a member. That's what grace is all about. Grace does not mean you don't have obligations. Spiritual life is full of obligations and responsibilities. It's part of our priesthood. Giving, witnessing, prayer, all of these things are part of our priesthood. And we need to take those things seriously. And we can't, especially in a small congregation, you can't just expect the other guy to pick up the tab because there are too many other guys. It's just us. And uh, that same thing is true. I remember the first time I heard Bob Salstrom, who used to be the alumni director at Dallas Seminary, and he was in, did a lot of church planning, that when a group of people would call him up and say, well, we want to start a Bible church, he would say, well, how many families are there? You need at least 10 or 15. And he would really read them the riot act. He would say, you've got 15 people here. Do not start a church unless none of you or unless all of you are willing to be here every time the doors are open for the next five years. No vacations. Nobody gone. Because if one family's gone one Sunday, that's 10% of the congregation. In a church of 100, that's like 10 people being gone. So if two happen to be gone, that's a lot. So everybody has to pull three times their weight. Well, in large congregations, people can get away with sitting in the back pew and not ever getting involved in some of the day-to-day functioning. But in a small congregation, you really don't, we don't have that luxury to sort of hide in the back pew. So we need to be challenged with these things because there are serious long-term things. I mean, the band-aids are going to work for a while, but sooner or later, even if it doesn't involve us, We have to have a vision for the future generations in this congregation, assuming they're doctrinally sound, which, since there's nothing in the bank from previous generations, I can only assume 
they did not step to the plate for. And nobody challenged them to do that. And that is what the Bible calls wisdom, is to lay up not only for now, but for the future generations and future needs. So we need to exercise some wisdom there. And, of course, wisdom is the application of doctrine. And chokhmah is the Hebrew word. And that refers to the application of doctrine in the face of testing. And so, as a congregation, we're faced with a little financial testing right now. And hopefully we won't think that the finances are the ultimate solution, because they're not. Ken did a good job pointing out the other night, the issue is the Lord's will. He will provide one way or another, but then don't use that as a cop-out to just simply think that, uh, oh, well, the Lord will take care of it and absolve yourself of personal responsibility. Now, the problem with this congregation that James is addressing is that they have gone in the opposite direction and they have sought to solve the problems in their life through the details of life, specifically money. So James says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Now this is one of those passages, we've run into a companion passage in the introduction that can be easily misinterpreted as some kind of a anti-money, anti-wealth, anti-riches uh, passage. And that is not true, and that is the furthest thing from the truth when you get into the Scripture. Some of the greatest believers in both the Old Testament and the New Testament were also the wealthiest men in their generation. Abraham was incredibly wealthy. Job was perhaps the Bill Gates of his generation. Uh, Barnabas was another that was very wealthy, owned quite a bit of land, and was willing to, uh, out of his own generosity, not because he had to, not because he was trying to gain favor with anybody, Barnabas was willing to sell off part of that in order to give all of it to the congregation. Of course, Ananias and Sapphira decided they wanted to have the same approbation that Barnabas got. They wanted to be known for their generosity, so they decided to sell some land and make everybody think that they were going to give it all to the church. And because they lied, they were the first people in church history to be slain in the Spirit. So now we have the problem of money. Now to understand this, we're going to have to get into the Greek and do a little exegesis. Now this begins with the Greek word age. Age is an interjection. It is a... Uh, something that emphasizes the following statement and is designed to grab their attention. It means, listen up now. Pay attention. Now, sometimes it's translated, come now or then, but I think that's a little weak. It means, listen. James wants to get their attention. He wants to uh, call them to correction here because of their attitude and their, their reversionism. It says, pay attention. And he is going to force them to think about the past and how they have been solving their problems. They are called the wealth, the rich, you rich, emphasizing their, uh, their background. Now, uh, what we need to do is look at this whole chart that we're developing on the uh, blueprint for the spiritual life. Now, you're going to get sick of listening at, looking at this chart over the next few weeks because we're going to hit it here. We're going to hit it in John on Sunday morning again and again, and I want to make sure that when you're sleeping at 3 o'clock in the morning, you're dreaming about this. And that way, when you get into some trouble, 
Maybe you'll think about what's really going on in life. This is the overall blueprint of what God is doing in our life, but, but that's a little complex because there's so many elements there. We'll take it one element at a time. First element, salvation. Salvation, we put our faith alone in Christ alone, and we are given a new spiritual life, and at the moment of salvation, we're not only indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, but we are filled with the Spirit, and we are mandated to walk by means of the Spirit. And this means that we have an option. Those option involves our volition. Now, time and again, we're going to have the doctrine in our soul tested. Now, what happens is that we can either be positive or negative. Now, what's happened here is among this congregation is these believers have been on negative volition for some time, and they're deep in reversionism. They have backslidden. They are operating on the sin nature, and they are going to be miserable because they are going to reap what they have sown. Hosea says, if you uh, uh, sow the wind, you'll reap the whirlwind, and that's exactly what is happening in these verses. And we need to realize that we have all kinds of tests in life, and every test provides us with an opportunity to make a decision for or against doctrine. If we make a decision for doctrine, then we go through a certain uh, series of growth steps. If we are walking by means of the Spirit, then we'll produce divine good. We will have a capacity for life and a quality of life. And our life will be evidence in the uh, angelic conflict, indicating that God's plan is good and perfect and wise. This leads to steadfast endurance, which was the point of James 1, 2 through 4, to challenge these believers to walk in endurance and to continuously obey the Word and apply doctrine in their life. This leads to the adult spiritual life eventually, and it's really a cycle. You go through more tests of doctrine, you apply doctrine positively, you continue to advance. On the other hand, if you are negative, then you are operating on sin, human good, and this leads to temporal death. You are separated from God, and your life will become miserable. You will become weaker and weaker in your soul, producing instability according to James 1, 7 to 8, and this leads to a spiritual regression and a hardened heart. Eventually, when you enter into phase 3 glorification and you're absent from the body face to face with the Lord, if you've been operating the maximum amount of time in your life in the top cycle, walking by the Holy Spirit, then you will uh, have rewards and an inheritance in heaven. If not, then you will lose rewards and there will be temporary shame at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, all of this is in view as background in this passage. See, when we hit tests of doctrine and we get at this phase here, we need to be thinking in terms of ultimately we're going to be standing at the judgment seat of Christ and do we want rewards and inheritance or a loss of rewards? That means if we're handling tests of doctrine well, we're thinking in terms of long-term application in heaven, then that means that we understand what it means to have a personal sense of our eternal destiny. We're going to make decisions now based on their impact in eternity. Well, these reversionistic believers that James is addressing have forgotten all about this, and they're putting all of their hope on temporal wealth. They are called the rich, ha Hoi plusioi, in the, the Greek, that is the masculine nominative, nominative plural of plusios, which means rich, wealthy, 
and it can apply to riches, can be used adjectivally. Hoi plusioi, this is not the first time that we have run across this, but it has been some time since we addressed this issue. The last time was in James 1, 9 through 11. So turn back to James 1, 9 through 11. And in case you weren't here, in July of 1998, 18 months ago, I think it's time for a little review. James 1, 9 through 11. Now, it's very important to understand this passage because the way it comes across in the English makes it sound like it's anti-wealth, but it's not. It's just the opposite. It is against putting your source of happiness in wealth. Nothing will make you more miserable than to look to the details of life, one of which is money, to look to the details of life for your source of happiness and strength and stability. James 1.9 says the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. And here it's talking about the believer who does not have much in the way of the details of life. For some, it's money, material possessions. For others, it's family, uh, social life, romance, education, business success, uh, all kinds of different details of life people look to in order to find security and happiness. This is a believer, who the humble believer here, is one that doesn't have very much. But James says, if that's you, then you are to glory in your high position. What is your high position? Your position in Christ. All of the riches that we have as part of our position in Jesus Christ. In contrast to the brother who lacks the details of life, there is the rich man, the plusios man. In verse 10, the rich man is to glory in his humiliation that it is not on the basis of his excessive details of life, that all of the possessions that he has or his success, his family, his friends, his loved ones, his romance, romantic life, whatever it may be, it, it, he is to glory in the fact that, that nothing that he has on his own counts for favor with God. And then there's the analogy, and the analogy is, what's, is the key to understanding the whole passage. Because like flowering grass... He will pass away. And literally in the Greek, it is, it is a genitive. It is the flower of the grass. So you have two things going on here in terms of the analogy. You have the, the grass. So here's a blade of grass. And then on top of that, you have the flower. Now, the flower represents the details of life. The blade of grass represents just basic necessities. And what James is saying in this particular passage is that the wealth, whatever your wealth may be, whether it's family, friends, whatever it may be, education, doesn't have to be money. Everybody has something different they look to for security and happiness. That at some time you're going to go through adversity. That's verse 11. For the sun rises with a scorching wind. This is a Scirocco wind. It's a strong, uh, dry, hot, dry wind that blows in and withers the grass. It blows the flower off, destroys the details of life, whatever it may be, and you are left with very little in life. So the sun rising with a scorching wind represents testing, adversity testing. Sun rises with a scorching wind, withers the grass, destroys the details of life, whatever the rich might have been relying on for their security. Its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man 
in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Now, that really shouldn't be translated the rich man, because it's not the rich man who fades away. It is his possessions, his wealth that fades away. See, if it's the rich man that fades away, that indicates that there's something wrong with being wealthy inherently. But that's not what the passage is saying. It's talking about the fact that the rich man needs to learn, the person who is wealthy needs to learn to rely upon something other than his, his wealth, other than money, other than material things to give him success and happiness, security in life. So that's the background. James has addressed this issue already. And now in James 5, 1 through 5, he comes back to it. He begins with the verb, the aorist active imperative, second person plural of klao. Klao means to weep, to wail, to lament, to cry. I think here a good translation is to lament. This is not simply an emotional reaction. This is the kind of weeping and wailing that is the result of extreme pain. This is not pseudo-pain. This is not working up some kind of emotion because you fail God and, and you know you're going to get it. Now you're sorry you got caught kind of thing. And so you're going to somehow try to impress God with your sorrow over your sin and that sort of thing. No, James is saying something much more than that. He uses the word, the, the, it's a command to weep. And it means to recognize the misery that you have in your life. See what happens in and self and the arrogant skills is you go from self-absorption to self-indulgence. Now, this is exactly what we see in this passage. If you look down, we'll skip ahead. Skip down to verse 5. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. What's that? Self-indulgence. They've gone from self-absorption to self-indulgence. Self-indulgence leads to self-justification. Self-justification leads to self-deception. So they have deceived themselves into thinking that, that they've amassed all this wealth, they've amassed this, this uh, success, all the material things, that somehow they're, they're really happy. And this is what happens to people, is that we, we get so busy in our lives that we think that we can sort of deaden the pain, deaden the misery, get uh, divorce ourselves from reality and away from God by thinking that the faster we run, the more successful we are, the more money we accumulate, that somehow we really do have uh, happiness and stability in life. And then all of a sudden, something happens and we realize how bankrupt we really are because the details of life can never supply stability, success, or security. So James gives them a command to weep and howl, for your miseries are coming upon you. Now this is a very interesting construction in the Greek. And we need to take some time to understand this. The first verb, weep, is a present, or excuse me, is an aorist active imperative. That means it's a priority, it's urgent to obey this right now. And that is followed by a present active participle halaluzantes from the Greek word alaludzo. Alaludzo. Now, alaludzo is an onomatopoeic verb. 
Now, for those of you who missed that lecture in high school English, an onomatopoeic word is a word that sounds like what it's expressing. Like when you howl. In fact, the English word howl comes from this Greek word. Howl sounds like a howl. It sounds like what you're talking about. Screech! That's an onomatopoeic word. It sounds like what it's communicating. And this comes originally from the Hebrew word al-al, which also means to howl, and then came over into Latin, ululare, and then into English as the word howl. And it means to scream, to let out a, a loud, inarticulate cry, to scream out in pain. It is an excessive expression of misery. This is not something that is just manufactured out of guilt or emotional response but is the reaction that you get when somebody comes up and kicks you as hard as they can in the shin. It is the automatic reflex to real misery and pain. Now, the interesting thing about this grammatically is that it's not a finite verb. Now, the way it's translated in your English text is as if there's two commands here, weep and howl. Weep, it clearly is a command. It's an aorist active imperative. But this isn't an imperative. It's a participle. It is a, an anarthrous participle, which means there's no definite article. The lack of the definite article means that it is adverbial. And it's an adverb of manner describing the weeping. So it is weep by screaming upon your miseries. And that brings us to the next phrase, which is, in the Greek, epitais talaporiais. And it means to, uh, the preposition over, it is weep by screaming out over your miseries, a recognition that, that you are facing divine discipline and misery in your life. This is not, a, a, although the context here is very emotional, the emphasis is not on emotion for emotion's sake. When, when you hit misery, when you come under serious divine discipline, and Galatians 5 says that a man reaps what he sows, and when all of a sudden you're faced with reaping the consequences of years of bad decisions, and now you're in serious self-induced misery, it has a deep emotional response. You are miserable emotionally. And if you react and respond on the basis of that emotion alone without turning to doctrine, then you're just going to make matters worse and go further into emotional revolt. Now, the background for this really comes from a verse in the Psalms, Psalm 106.15. Psalm 106.15 says, And he gave them their request, speaking about God, answering their prayer, but he sent leanness into their soul. And the word translated leanness is the Hebrew word razon, which means emptiness and barrenness. And this is exactly what is described in Psalm 106, that God went ahead, and even though they were asking for the wrong thing and it would not give them happiness, He supplied it in order to demonstrate to them the bankruptcy of their focus on life. He sent leanness into their soul, emptiness and barrenness. This is the same thing that we have here. They, these, this group, whoever they were, 
have pursued business, they've pursued success, they have made their business their priority, they have not paid attention to doctrine, they have not applied doctrine in their life, and now they are facing some serious catastrophes and adversity, and there is nothing in their soul to get them through, and they are absolutely miserable, and there is no better way to guarantee misery in life than to put your hope in any of the details of life for security and happiness. The result is an overwhelming and miserable fragmentation of the soul. This is the picture that we get from these these verbs. Weep and howl is like the scream, the torturous scream that emits from the depths of a person's soul when they realize that they have invested their life in nothing but emptiness. And now they are called to account for it. This is a warning to all of us that we need to make sure that when we face life that we have our priorities on the eternal issues of doctrine as defined by the Word of God and that we are solving problems not on the basis of our own resources and our own abilities, but on the basis of the problem-solving devices and stress busters outlined in Scripture. Now, James doesn't stop here. He continues almost to twist the knife in their back. He really wants to make sure that they and we understand the seriousness of this problem. James 5.2 says, Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Now, what does he mean? First of all, to understand this verse, we have to identify what the riches and garments are here. The riches are all of the, the financial resources they have amassed, thinking that somehow by being wealthy they'd find happiness and they would be able to solve their problems. Their garments refer to that outer, the outer wrappings and trappings of life that somehow we think will impress people with our success and our ability and that this is the veneer of our success, but there's no internal capacity. It's all on the outside, but there's no internal strength. There's no internal capacity for handling problems. Now, James says here that, that your riches have rotted. And the word here for rotted is the perfect active indicative of the Greek word sapo. Present active indicative of sapo looks like this in the Greek, S-E-P-O. And sapo means to rot, to decay, to corrupt, to perish. What it shows is that wealth and riches have a temporal value only and have no eternal value and thus cannot solve the real core problems in life. For the core problems in life, the issue underlying all suffering is not what it appears on the surface. All suffering stems from the fall. Therefore, at the root of every adversity and every difficulty, every problem in life is a spiritual issue. Therefore, the solution must start spiritually. Let's get an application. We have a problem. Two ways you can look at a problem. We've got the problem with the building. We'll just use that. This old building needs either needs two or three hundred thousand dollars to fix it up 
or we need to go spend two or three hundred thousand dollars on a new building. Now, that's a test. How are we going to handle that? Well, we can look at it and we can say, well, the solution's in the money, and we can go out and try to raise money any way we can, have bake sales and car washes, or it take a lot of car washes to come up with that kind of money, but uh, twist people's hands, say, okay, everybody needs to tithe, we're going to have a, a uh, big budget campaign here, and we're going to paint a thermometer up on the front of the church, and we're going to you know, make sure, give everybody a call every week and make sure they're tithing. And that would be putting our trust in the money. Now, we still need the money. But our trust isn't in the money. Our trust is in the Lord. So we're going to see there, there's certain things that are similar. But the underlying area of trust is not in the finances, in a grace solution. The underlying issue is our trust is in, in the grace of God and He's going to supply. But in the course of His supply, we're going to rely upon the, we're going to make sure we're doing what we're supposed to be doing in terms of individual responsibility. But we know that the solution does not lie in our own resources and the solution does not rely in our own methodology. Somebody once told me years ago that any slick salesman can go out and raise a couple hundred thousand dollars. But just because you can raise a couple hundred thousand dollars does not mean you've done it in God's plan or done it God's way. And see, you have to do, you have to live the Christian life not only in terms of the right end result, but also the right methodology. And that's where people get into trouble, is we think that anything that works must somehow have the blessing of God. Now, when we look at this passage, we realize that, that the details of life are temporary. One day we might have them, the next day we don't. And here specifically it's talking about money. Now, let's look at a couple of principles. First of all, there's nothing inherently wrong with money, wealth, or the possession of material things. Now, some of you might have a trend in your sin nature towards asceticism. I've never quite understood that because that's not the trend of my sin nature. Asceticism means that you think that somehow it impresses God and it's more spiritual to do without than to have. I always thought it was more spiritual to be comfortable, but that's another story. That's because asceticism is not my weakness. There's nothing inherently wrong with money, wealth, or the possession of material things. You always have people come along and talk about, well, Jesus was really poor. He didn't have anything. and He didn't have, you know, he only had one change of clothes. And, and yet, as we saw in our study of John, he had a seamless robe. And in that day and time, to have a seamless garment was remarkable. It was, it was comparable to having one of the finest tailor-made suits available today. That's why the Roman soldiers gambled for it at the foot of the cross. It did not cost uh, 10 or $20 to buy that robe. It was probably in today's money, probably worth several thousand dollars. That's why it was so valuable to the Roman soldiers. Uh, other great believers in history have been wealthy Believers. Jesus also owned a house, by the way. He owned a house in Capernaum, and I think that's demonstrable from some passages in Matthew and Luke. So don't get this kind of idea that it's more spiritual to do without than to have, because it's not. What makes you more spiritual is your relationship to God, the Holy Spirit, the amount of doctrine in your soul, and how consistently you are applying it. Point number two. What's wrong is using the details of life, whether it's money, friends, family, possessions, 
whatever it might be, what's wrong is using the details of life to solve problems and to be a source of happiness. Anytime you put your source of happiness on something that can change, then you're saying you are a slave to that object. You have just enslaved your emotions to something that may be here today and gone tomorrow. We must put our focus on that which is immutable, otherwise our happiness will be mutable. And the only source of, in, of anything that is unchangeable is the person and character of God, and so that alone needs to be the source of our happiness. So we cannot put our happiness on anything that needs to be painted, needs to be moved, needs to be invested, or can be lost. We have to put it on something which can never change, and ultimately that is on Bible doctrine and the person and character of God. Third, the details of life have failed these believers because the details of life were never designed to solve problems. They are there for our enjoyment. They are there for our pleasure. God created those, and they are to be enjoyed to their fullest, but kept in the proper perspective. I remember several years ago, a good friend of mine was a pastor of a church. Now, this particular pastor was a very wise investor. He had been a vice president. In fact, I've met two or three pastors like this that fit this profile. He had been the vice president of a national mortgage company before he went into ministry. When he was originally in ministry, he was with a national campus ministry, and he was involved in finances. And over the, in his 20s and 30s, he made a number of very wise investments. Every time he would go out and buy a Mercedes, he would catch all kinds of flack from people. Oh, a pastor can't drive a car like that. And yet, he had been very wise in, in his use of resources, and God had blessed him. And yet, you always have this jealousy crop up among Christians, thinking that somehow you should never do something like that. And at least if you're a pastor, you just have to have some old bucket of bolts that you're driving down the street. And sad to say, that's how many congregations keep their pastors. They just hardly pay them anything at all. Uh, the problem we have is either asceticism or the, we go the other extreme, materialism. And the Bible says, look, wealth, the things that money can buy are good. There's nothing wrong with it. If God has blessed you, enjoy it. It is God's blessing in your life. And if somebody else has it and you don't, then avoid the mental attitude, sins, jealousy, and envy. That may be a test for you. Point four, it's not the money or the details of life that are corrupt. It is what these things do to the soul of the reversionist believer who has no capacity. When you are a believer walking by means of the Spirit, you can have and you can have not. That's what Paul says in Philippians 4. He says, I've learned to suffer want and I've learned to have an abundance. And then he's concluded, I can do all things. The all things there means any kind of circumstance in life. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He, recognized, he had learned to master the details of life so that they were not a distraction to his life. Incidentally, mastery of the details of life is fundamental to grace orientation. Grace orientation means you recognize that everything you have in life is due to the grace of God, not your own energy, not your own effort. So if you have or you don't have, 
Ultimately, you're relying upon God's grace. Now, if you don't master the details of life, then you really haven't mastered grace orientation, so you're still a somewhat adolescent believer. Now, James continues to uh, correct the behavior of these reversionists. In verse 3, he says, Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Now, one of the first things that we ought to notice here is that the word for rust is katai'a'o. It's a perfect passive indicative indicating the perfect tense indicates the present results of past action. In the past, they have continuously failed to apply doctrine. The passive indicates that the subject of the verb, which is there's gold and there's silver, is acted upon by some outside source. What's the outside source? It's the discipline of God upon all that they have uh, accumulated in life. Now, we know that gold and silver do not rust. He's using an image here that the gold and silver are no longer of any value to solve their problems. But we also have another issue here, and that is a really bad translation in the second clause. The first clause reads, Your gold and your silver have rusted. The second clause is translated, And their rust. But that's not what it says in the Greek at all. The word in the Greek is the definite article, Ha plus the noun, Eos. Ha, Eos. And Eos means poison, not rust. It is the consequence of what's gone on inside their soul. It refers to the venom that's in their soul that is eating away at every aspect of their life. Just like venom that enters into the body, let's say from a snake bite, that uh, surges through the circulatory system and begins to eat away at all the nerve endings in the body and get into the cell structure all over the body. The same way when you get involved in mental attitude sins and greed and materialism lust, are, is a poison in the soul. It's just as much a, a, a destructive mental attitude sin as bitterness and jealousy and envy and all of those. For you from the inside out. And that is exactly what is happening to these believers. James says that everything that you have put your trust in, your gold, your silver, is, is useless now. It's rusted. It's no good. And the venom, all this lust has produced a venom in your soul, and this will testify against you when? At the judgment seat of Christ. We go back to the original chart. We know that after, after death, phase three, we're absent from the body face to face with the Lord, and we will all be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ. And what James is saying here is that your rust or this poison, this venom, will testify against you. When your works are burned up, nothing will be left and you will be consumed. That's the point of the image here. That everything is burned up, nothing is of eternal value is left. There's no divine good, so you enter into heaven with nothing. That's the point. There's sarcasm in the last phrase here. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. See, James wants us to realize that we are storing up treasure for heaven. If we are living in obedience to the Lord, walking by means of the Spirit, applying doctrine unto the filling of the Spirit, 
then we are laying up divine good for which we will be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. If not, if we're trying to solve our problems through human viewpoint thinking, what James calls demonic, earthly, natural thinking, which we would call the earthly systems, worldly systems of problem solving, then that's the kind of treasure we're going to lay up in eternity. It's going to be wood, hay, and straw, and it will be consumed at the last I mean, at the uh, judgment seat of Christ, and we will enter into heaven yet as through fire, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So the issue is personal sense of eternal destiny. They have no grace orientation, no mastery of the details of life, and no personal sense of their eternal destiny. So they have failed to learn doctrine, failed to grow, failed to apply doctrine, failed to apply the problem-solving devices of grace orientation, doctrinal orientation, and personal sense of eternal destiny to their problems. Rather than using God's solution, they have sought the human solution, and the result is failure and bankruptcy in their life. Because what undergirded their entire approach was arrogance, it worked itself out socially. See, there are social implications to grace orientation, and this is covered in verses 4 through 6. Verse 4, because of their arrogance, they were... Greedy, self-absorbed with their own money, and so they cheated people. Verse 4 says, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. You see, what happened is these laborers entered into an agreement. They expected to be paid at the end of the week. Instead of being paid at the end of the week, the wealthy held on to their money and refused to pay them and found some excuse for why they shouldn't pay the laborers. And so these laborers cry out against them and they have sought the, the um, Supreme Court of Heaven for vengeance. Remember, we studied that in James chapter 4, verse 12. There's one, only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you who judge your neighbor? So these apparently are believers who have been maltreated by these wealthy reversionist believers and we saw the same kind of situation with the, uh, with the ushers in James chapter 2 who were showing favoritism to the wealthy who were persecuting them. So they are maltreating other believers and these believers are going to the Lord for judgment. That's the title there at the end. The Lord of Sabaoth. That's not Lord of the Sabbath. Remember that you'll find the same phrase in uh, Martin Luther's famous hymn, uh, mighty fortress is our God, the Lord Sabaoth. It's a Hebrew word meaning Lord of the armies. And here it relates to the fact that the Lord stands at the head of all of the angelic hosts and He is the one who utilizes the angels as His messengers to execute judgment on the earth in time. Even now the Lord uses angels as His messengers to carry out a divine discipline on believers and to uh, execute justice and vengeance on behalf of believers who are mistreated. The problem here is their self-indulgence. Well, th- let's go to Deuteronomy 24. This goes back to a, to a principle in the law in Deuteronomy 24, 14 and 15. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether, whether he is one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who is in your land, in your towns. You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets, 
for he is poor and sets his heart on it, so that he may not cry against you to the Lord, and it becomes sin in you. See, the Lord recognized the importance of economic honesty among those who are employers and put this into the Mosaic Law that part of grace orientation is fiscal responsibility towards those who work for you. There is a responsibility upon those who hire others to take care of their needs and to treat them in integrity and honesty. This goes back to the Mosaic Law and is the foundation for this cry. Now in James 5.5, you've lived luxuriously. You've been in self-indulgence, operating on self-absorption and the arrogant skills. You've lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You really didn't care about the Lord. Priority was on personal pleasure, personal happiness, and doing whatever you wanted. And you've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. In other words, you have uh, provided everything for yourself, and now there is a time of testing, the day of slaughter. And you will be held accountable. James 5, 6, You have condemned and put to death the righteous man, and he does not resist you. And this shows that the the righteous man, the man who worked for them, for him who is maltreated, does not resist the, the rich man who mistreats him. The rich man condemns them, puts them to death, mistreats them, but yet the believer operating on divine problem-solving devices does not react in bitterness, does not react in anger, takes it to the supreme court of heaven no matter what it costs him, he recognizes that the Scripture says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. And so he takes the problem to the Supreme Court of Heaven and leaves it there. So James concludes with this verse, the main body of the epistle, by going back to one of the major issues in the congregation he's addressing, and that is that they're trying to solve their problems, their adversity, by looking to the details of life for their solutions rather than God's problem-solving devices, rather than finding it joy because they understand the testing principles of Scripture, they are trying to find happiness in the details of life. And as we're going to see in the conclusion, starting in verse 7, the issue is patience and endurance in orienting to the plan of God for problem-solving. And we'll start off there in verse 7 next Wednesday night with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You for the fact that Your Word makes it so clear where our priorities are to be, not upon the details of life, but upon Your Word, that only when we are properly oriented to Scripture, oriented to doctrine, can we have capacity to uh, enjoy the details of life and to have true happiness, because it's not dependent on things, people. It's not dependent upon events. It's simply dependent upon Your immutable character, and on the never-changing Word of God. Father, we pray that we would be challenged by the things that we have studied tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.